He sends His Son to live a righteous life for us. To die a death on the cross under the wrath of God so that we might receive justice for our sins, which is eternal damnation. And through faith in Him, He gives us His righteousness, which doesn't repel the Father. The Father delights in the Son. He loves the Son. He cherishes the Son. And we hold the Son up to the Father in our place. And He loves us and He delights over us. And that's reason to rejoice and be thankful. That's reason to have hope even in the most dire of situations today. And it's why we come together as the church to sing and to pray and to give and to look into the Word of God together because the King who purchased us from our sin hasn't left us alone in the world. He speaks to us in the world through His Word. And today we're in 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. And God has a word for us as His church. A very specific word concerning our mission. A very specific word concerning your life as a Christian in the world. And that's why before every sermon, as we read the Scripture together, we stand in reverence to the Word. Because we honor the Word. Because we remember that it is Christ's Word to us. The One who loved us and died for us, cherishes us, speaks to us. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the waters." Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. Oh God, we thank You for Your Word today. And God, I pray that we would be able to make sense out of your word so we would be able to make sense out of our lives. God, I pray that we would surrender to your word because we have surrendered to Jesus as Lord and Savior and his word is all we need. It should be all we want to hear and do in this world. God, make sense out of suffering. Make sense out of success by the power of your Spirit today. God, we want to be a church that lives for Christ. We want to be a church that witnesses and declares His glory in Richmond to the ends of the earth. And we need the power of your Word to do so. So shape us into witnesses that image forth Christ in the world. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I've seen fire 
and I've seen rain. That's a classic James Taylor song. And I, I don't listen to James Taylor, but I, I know that from some of you. And, uh, and it also describes one of the scariest moments of my life that actually happened this summer behind my house. If you never had to get rid of a hot tub, you would know that that is a very difficult thing to do. Nobody wants an old junky hot tub, and getting rid of it and finding a place to throw it away is pretty difficult. So like any good redneck from Tennessee, I thought about it for several months and decided I'm going to try to burn this thing. And so my boys and I rolled this hot tub down the hill behind my house into this massive pit where we burn a lot of things. And Danae told me it was a very bad idea and I shouldn't do it. But as I sat and looked at the insulation coming out the side and the, all, the paneling around the side, I thought this thing will make for just a wondrous display of fire and smoke. And, and, and I couldn't wait to see it. And I tried to light it on fire and it did. It started just engulfing in smoke and flames and it turned into this massive bomb that I thought was going to kill the whole neighborhood. And so Anna and I finally, after it seemed like an hour of just pouring water on this thing, we, we put the fire out and uh, there laid this just charred hot tub in the back behind our house. And so we eventually had to saw it up and take it to various dumpsters across Richmond. And, uh, but still, even after all of that, I had a pile of just scrap hot tub stuff in this pit behind my house. And I thought, now, it's, now I could probably burn it and enjoy this fire and this smoke. And, and so... Uh, one day, I noticed that there was a massive, I mean massive, it was in the middle of July, a massive storm that was headed toward Richmond. And I said, now is the perfect time to burn all of this scrap. And so uh, I didn't realize how much had been there because we had piled a lot of wood in that pit uh, over time. And so I just dosed it and doused it, I mean, in gasoline. <laughs> And finally lit it on fire, and this storm was coming, and this fire started raging into the tops of our trees behind our house. And, and I realized that wasn't, this wasn't a good idea. Like, I, this, this, I've got to do something about this problem of watching things burn. And this storm is, is coming in, and I thought, okay, the storm and the fire, these are things are going to meet, and I'm going to be safe, it's going to be okay. And the wind starts blowing and the fire is moving behind my house. And I'm standing there in fear. And I don't know, should I call the fire department? And uh, some of you are saying, yes, you should have. <laughs> but here comes this storm. And it's a massive storm. And it comes in and it starts raining. And I thought, yes, finally, uh, the, the fire's going to go out. The rain's going to put the fire out. But what had happened was the rain came down so hard. This was a massive storm in July. And off the back of our house, water uh, behind our house, water was just raging down this hill into this pit. And I, I thought again, 
the fire is going to go out soon and it just the wind and everything just made the fire worse and it's going up and yet there's rain and what had happened in the pit behind our house was almost like a whirlpool around this fire there were water there was water just swirling around the fire and the fire was just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and before long the the water did move the fire if you've never been to our house you know where our house ends on this like hundred foot cliff that goes into silver creek and finally the water coming off uh, our backyard did move the fire and embers of wood were shooting off the back of that cliff and fire was going off into silver creek a hundred foot down just shooting off the back of our house now some of you think this is preacher exaggeration and it's not. I've figured out all week how I can really tell this story. Anna was there. We looked at each other and we said, we just get ourselves in the most stupidest of situations <laughs> when it comes to fire and water. And I thought I was going to burn the west side of Madison County down that day <laughs> as I watched sticks of wood shooting off the back of our property and just sat down and prayed, God, please. Please don't burn Richmond down. Don't burn <laughs> Madison County down. But you realize fire is supposed to scare us. Even when we think about phobias that most people describe being scared of things, their greatest fears, fire and water often come up. Being burned to death or being drowned to death. These are phobias. And and we know when we stand before fire, there's that feeling in our gut, even before some of the smallest fires we've seen. I just can't control this. There's something going on there that I have no control of. Or, or when we've stood before raging, rushing water, we, we've felt that in our gut where this could destroy me. This could put me under and suffocate me. And, and, and I can't control the fire. I can't control the water. And that is by design. When we read the Bible, the two forms of judgment that God often uses to describe His justice are fire and water. Think about uh, what we're gonna, even going to talk about today, the flood. This massive worldwide cataclysmic flood that destroys the earth. Think about Sodom and Gomorrah where fire rains down from heaven. Think about the Exodus where God judges his enemies and he drowns them to death in the Red Sea while he saves his people. Think about the story of Jonah where his prophet is, 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 is thrown overboard and spins the nights in the belly of this serpent fish in water. And he totally has spit on land. We, we think about judgment. We think about chaos. We even think about rescue. And we think about fire. We think about water. Think about how human history is going to end for the enemies of God. They're going to be punished not just in hell, but a lake. A lake of fire. Where those two pictures of judgment come together, fire and water. And Peter here uses those two things, fire and water, throughout 1 Peter to describe the suffering that these exiles are going through. 
Remember, he writes to a group of Christians who are suffering because they are Christians. Nero has spread that these folks are up to no good. They've even tried to burn down Rome. And many of them are being killed for their faith. Many of them are losing their jobs because they're Christians. Many of them would not go home for Thanksgiving because they're not welcome there. Because they've become Christians. And Nero has spread these rumors of slander. And Peter writes to them and he says, You feel like you're in a flood of suffering. You feel like you are in chaos and the world is, is just spiraling out of control. You feel like you're going through fire. You feel like you're going through a flood. And yet God has given you a sign of fire and water to remind you that Jesus is Lord. Notice the text, verse 18. For Christ has suffered once for sins. I want to remind you as you suffer as you go through difficulty, that Jesus suffered once for sin. And it is the cross here that makes sense of all suffering. The, the suffering he describes here, it is summarized in, in, in the cross. All of Jesus' suffering culminates in the cross where he died, he suffered once for sin. And notice how it's described, once for sin. When Jesus died for sin, it was sufficient to pay for sin. We talk about here the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, where he dies in our place to make a payment for God to God for our sin. And it is sufficient payment. It's a once and for all payment. It doesn't need to be made again. But notice he says the righteous for the unrighteous. The term righteous means to be inwardly right. From the inside, you are right. You always do what is right. Or, he says, unrighteous here, for the unrighteous, you are inwardly wrong. And you have the tendency to do what is wrong. And notice how the death of Christ is described. Jesus is the only one who is purely inwardly right. He's never done wrong. And yet he suffers for those who are inwardly wrong and tend to do what is wrong, and deserve to suffer. So the one who didn't deserve to die, dies for those who deserve to die. And notice why. To bring us to God. Now, this is the goal and, and ultimate end of the gospel, that we would be brought to God. Our sin separates us from God. Sin must be judged by God. God can have nothing to do with the unrighteous. But Jesus dies for the unrighteous so that they might be brought to God, brought into fellowship with God, ushered into His presence. That's what the payment of Jesus' death on the cross does for us. It brings us to God. And we see here, we must understand as we think about this, that all sin must be punished. Your sin, your rebellion against God is an infinite offense against God that must be punished. If God just looks past your sin, you know what that says about him? He's no longer right. He's no longer just. He's no longer perfect if he allows sin to exist. No, he's right and he always does what is right. And so to allow you to have fellowship with him, to be brought to him, your sin must be punished. And what Peter is saying is that's exactly what happened on the cross. God remains right in forgiving you. The one who is not right. 
God remains just in forgiving you, the one who is unjust. Jesus gets the justice for your sin. You get the justice of his cross. And that is the heart of the gospel. It's what many theologians throughout history called the great exchange. The just for the unjust. The great exchange. We get his righteousness and he gets our punishment. On the cross, every sin, all your guilt that would anger God, that would cause him to hate you and despise you and shun you, all of your sin and unrighteousness, all of your unjustness was placed upon Jesus and he bore the condemnation until there was no more condemnation. He paid for it sufficiently once and for all for you. And then when you believe in the cross, guess what you get? You get all of his righteousness. You get all of his obedience. It is credited to you. All of his rightness. All of his righteousness is given to you. The Bible says when you believe and you have faith, you are declared righteous. You are justified. And God looks upon you as if you had never sinned and you always obeyed because of Jesus. There's a great exchange. Your sin for his righteousness at the heart of the gospel this glorious declaration that you can stand before God forgiven, not because he looks past your sin, but because he punishes your sin in Jesus. And so how does that give you hope when you suffer? Peter's point to these exiles is as you suffer fiery trials, you're not being judged. You've already been judged in Jesus. The difficulty you face, it's not God's judgment. It's living in a world cursed with sin and death, enduring maybe consequences for your sin, enduring the consequences of sins of others, but it's not the judgment of God upon you. He told us earlier he is, he is molding in us something of infinite value, faith like gold. But during your worst moments of abandonment from others, betrayal, cancer, being persecuted for your faith, depression... In those most difficult, worst moments of your life, you have to believe and you have to look to the cross and remember, I'm not being judged by God. This isn't judgment. That was already taken care of in Jesus. All suffering is summed up in his suffering. And by the way, the cross is the greatest why moment in human history. Some of you are here today and you're going through very difficult situations. And you're asking the question, why me? Some of you would look at other people that you know, friends and family, and you would say, why not them? They're scoundrels. They deserve to suffer. Why, why not the vile, the wicked? Why do I have to go through this moment of embarrassment and suffering? Why do I have to endure this? Remember the cross and ask, why did Jesus do that? Why would Jesus... It's the greatest why moment in human history. When you feel entitled to something, realize what you're entitled to. You were entitled to hell because of your sin. And yet Jesus endured the hell for your sin in your place. It's the greatest why moment in human history. The cross is the greatest injustice in human history. Jesus didn't deserve to die. What's going on on the cross 
is injustice for Jesus. He's suffering something he didn't deserve. It was unfair to Jesus. And so when you think about things not being fair, remember the cross as you suffer. But notice he continues, he talks about the flood and the rule of Jesus. Jesus was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. The point here is as you see the cross of Christ, there's more going on than just flesh and blood being destroyed. There is the wrath of God that is unleashed on the Son of God. There's more than just the physical. And also, Jesus dying under the wrath of God isn't this mystical thing out there. You see it as you see him die. The consequences for sin is that you die. And so the father turns his face on the son until he dies. Until he endures the full extent of what sin has caused death in the world. And so he dies. But he's also enduring abandonment from God, which is wrath from God, which is judgment from God. He who has perfect fellowship with God and deserves perfect fellowship with God, that is severed in some sense on the cross, and he endures wrath for you. And that's why he says he is made alive by the Spirit. There's more going on in what you're seeing, and you see it three days later when he is raised from the dead, declaring to you that the payment was received in full. How do we know Jesus paid for our sins? Because he's alive and well and at the right hand of God right now, having been raised from the dead. But notice what he does, verse 19. In which or when he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison... Here the verse declares to us when Jesus was raised from the dead, after he was raised from the dead, he went and did something. He preached to spirits who were in prison. These seem to be Old Testament demons and angels who opposed God at the time of the flood. And Jesus goes and declares to them victory. Notice verse 20. Because they formerly did not obey God when God's presence weighed it, In the days of Noah, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through. Here Peter refers back to the flood. As as you think about suffering, as you think about chaos, difficulty in your life, let's talk about the flood is what he says. And Jesus has declared victory over sin and death but also all chaos and destruction by being raised from the dead. And he refers to the flood, this this event in human history, which we would look back and we would say, "How? give me something tangible to declare God's justice and wrath. Where have we seen that? Well, we've seen the flood, where men were doing whatever they wanted to. They did what was right in their own eyes, in their own heart, until God finally had had enough, and he's going to wipe the whole world out with water. Except for eight people he saves in an ark. Now, we think about the flood. So often we think about Noah's ark, sort of a cute cartoon picture in our kids' nursery. And it's okay if you have one of those paintings in your kids' nurseries. You know, with the little boat and the two giraffe heads coming out the side and rainbow in the background and everybody's smiling. Really, if you put in your child's nursery a legit, realistic painting of the flood, it would scare them to death. It would be like the most gruesome, goriest painting from a scene from the Lord of the Rings that you would just hang in your child's room 
And he would say, why would any parent do that? That's weird. But, but the flood here is meant to scare us. The mentioning of the flood where millions are drowning. They're screaming out to be rescued. And, and God is wiping them out with raging water. That's meant to scare us. The, the beauty of God's creation is being demolished. And when you think about the flood, you think about Noah's Ark, there's supposed to be that precarious feeling of fear. That's something no one could control but God. And yet in that, he rescues eight people. And there's more going on there than, than we often think. Uh, he, he refers here to spiritual warfare that was going on. If we go back to Genesis 6 through 9, this time where sin and rebellion is spiraling out of control. There were these angels who left their home, they left their abode, and they began to procreate with women. And, and that's a picture of just how backwards the order in the world had gotten. And, and, and it's so out of control, and there is so much chaos. And what does that have to do with Jesus? Well, when he is raised from the dead, he goes back and declares to these forces that he is king, that he's putting everything back together, that he, is, he, is, he has endured the flood of God's judge, judgment, and he is king, and he is ruler, and he goes back even to the forces of darkness from the Old Testament, that are raging against him. And he, he taunts them in some sense. You see, the flood was this cosmic justice for the world's sin, and only a few survived. The cross was the climax of sin and death, and only one man survived, and his name is Jesus. And in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, we know when he was raised from the dead, he defeated death. And verse 15 of Colossians chapter 2 says this, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. So what is Jesus? There's more going on at the resurrection than just Jesus was raised from the dead. There is spiritual warfare and there is spiritual victory that's being declared. Even as we sung today those powerful words, death was arrested by who? Jesus. He rules over sin and death and he turns to the forces of darkness throughout history who would oppose God and he taunts them. In some sense, the resurrection is his end zone dance. It is his victory lap where he turns to them and says, you have no power over me. You will all be defeated in the end. You were imprisoned at the flood. You will be thrown into a lake of fiery flooding at the end of history. And he declares that to them. Notice the text continues, verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this. First of all, baptizo is the word here. And it means to immerse or submerge. Now, when we read our Bibles, we find baptism, it's a word that's transliterated. There is a uh, decision that people who are, who are interpreting the Bible for us make at that point. And instead of translating the word, they transliterate it. They give you a word that sounds like what it is in Greek. Baptizo or baptism. If they were to translate it, they would say immerse. And, and the verse would read immersion, which corresponds to this. If we wanted to be... Uh, 
you know, just an in-your-face Baptist church. Every time we talked about baptism, we would just call it immersion. Immersion. We're immersing someone today. We just had an immersion here today. We plunged them under. And here he says, your baptism is like the flood. The flood of justice. The flood of judgment that covered the earth. It is like the death and resurrection of Jesus. It is a type. It is a type of flood. It is a type of cosmic justice that we have seen. And he says, it now saves you. It rescues you. But notice he's very clear. Not as a removal from dirt, from the body, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. What saves you before God? Jesus' righteousness. Jesus' death. How can you stand before him with a good conscience? How can you stand before him not guilty? It's only because of Jesus. But your baptism is the appeal to God for that. It is the sign to God for that. And it's only possible through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're only saved through the resurrection of Christ. And your baptism is your pledge that you believe that. I want to be very clear. We're not saved through getting in water. There's nothing magical about that. Actually, it's very, very dirty. Dust sort of, it rests in this tub and we can never get it as clean as we want. It's very dirty. It doesn't save you. It's just water from a faucet. That's all it is. It's not going to make you a Christian. Going through the act doesn't make you a Christian. Getting in this water and being baptized by our church doesn't make you a Christian. There's nothing magical that happens. You're not earning your salvation there. But... That doesn't mean it's not important. When you are baptized, that is what he says here, your appeal. Notice, appeal to God for a good conscience. Appeal is pledge. It is your vow to God. It is the symbol of your faith. When we get married, we say to our spouse, I'm committed to you no matter what. And I'm not leaving no matter what. I love you. And how do we make sure that they know that? Well, we sign contracts, get marriage license, but we also stand before God in His church and we do what? We make vows. And we enter into a covenant with this person before God. That's what is happening at your baptism. It is your vow to God that you trust Him alone to save you from your sins. And you will live to Him alone forever, for the rest of your life. And you are united to Him. Baptism is the necessary sign of your vow to, in your covenant with God that is a covenant by faith in Christ alone. Baptism is the symbol of your union with Christ. When John the Baptist came preaching, he says, I'm baptizing you with water, but there is one coming after me, and he will baptize you with the Spirit and with fire. If you turn from the kingdom that is coming, the very presence of the kingdom will baptize you, will immerse you. And when you get into this water, that's what you're declaring. I have been immersed by the Spirit of God. The word means to be so intertwined you can't tell the two apart. Your baptism is the symbol of your union with God, that you are united with Him, and you can't tell yourself from Jesus apart. It's also the sign of your judgment. John the Baptist said, I am baptizing with water. One's coming who will baptize with the Spirit and fire. 
You're going to be immersed with the Spirit when you believe in Him. But those who don't will be immersed in fire. And then what does Jesus do? He comes to John and he says, I need to be baptized. And John says, no, you don't. What are you turning from? You're the king. You're righteous. You're the lamb of God. You don't need to turn. You are righteous. You are perfect. There is nothing, no coming judgment that you need to turn from. What's going on? And he says, I'm doing this to fulfill all righteousness. He's not earning righteousness. What is he saying there? I'm here to do what is right for my people, and I am identifying for them, with them. And when John the Baptist puts Jesus underwater, there is a symbol that he is identifying with us as sinners, and he will be suffocated under the wrath of God for us and raised up. And those who do not believe in him will be suffocated under the wrath of God. That is the union that is going on there when you say, Jesus came and he identified with me in his baptism. When you are baptized, you're saying, I identify with him. And you know what you're saying? I've already been judged with him. He came to be judged for me. He symbolized that in his baptism. In my baptism, I say I was judged with him. And that's why this is sort of weird and awkward. It's very strange. There was silence in here this morning when we were doing baptism. And everybody's like, oh, this is weird. I don't know. It's kind of awkward, cattle trough. It's supposed to be weird. It is. You can't make this pristine. You know why? We're symbolizing the death of someone. We're symbolizing a corpse being plunged under and raised up. That's weird and that's cultish. And it's awkward and it's strange. People tell me, I'm scared of water. I'm scared to talk in front of people. This is awkward. This is scary. And I say, yes, and so is death and hell. And we know people are working through that and we were going to be gracious and merciful and kind and we're going to take time. If if you can't wrap your mind around that, that's who we are. Maybe you're not ready for that. That's okay. But understand what we are symbolizing is death, being plunged under in the wrath of God and being raised up in Christ. That's why we, we hold people under. They can't get back up. Why? They're they're supposed to be symbolizing, signaling their death. And then you raise them up. They can't do it. Some of them try to. They're squirming in there. And I have to raise them up. Why? They can't do it on their own. In your baptism, you're saying, I've already died with Jesus on the cross. I've already been immersed in the wrath with Jesus on the cross. And I've already been raised with Jesus on the cross. There's so much confusion about baptism because we treat it like a mascot in most places. You're not hanging out with the mascot at many games. Mascot comes out, gets the crowd pumped and excited. But, but you're not going out to dinner after the game with the mascot. He has a purpose It's just to get us excited. We we think that's what baptism is, just to get us excited. It's this thing that we tack on to the side. Baptism isn't our mascot. It is our sign. In some sense, it's our logo. It it, it is us saying we've already died and we've already been raised up with Jesus. And and if it's scary and it's awkward, I want to remind you that many brothers and sisters, and this is a true reality throughout history, 
When they walked into the waters of baptism, they were held under and drowned because it was illegal. And they said, I'm following Christ anyway. Many today, that is their sign to the world that they're following Christ. And they may be arrested today and killed because of that sign. And what are they saying? I am united to Christ no matter what. I am following. It is the flag that they fly. And there's more going on here than than meets the eye. What what Peter is saying is Jesus has been lifted up and raised from the dead. And he is king of heaven and on earth. And he has made sure that Satan and his legions know. And you join in that voice. You join in the preaching of the gospel to the forces of darkness and to the world when you are immersed under. This isn't this little sentimental thing, rite of passage that you're doing. Today, you know what Drew said? He said to us over and over again, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Christ died for my sins. Christ died for my sins. That's why I'm here. I can face tomorrow because of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we heard that and we were encouraged by it. But there were demons shrieking around this baptismal pool this morning. They were howling in fear. There was more going on there than what we saw. And it's the same thing Jesus declared to the forces of darkness when he got out of the tomb and said, I'm back. I'm raised from the dead and you can't stop me. That is exactly what we declared to one another and to the forces of darkness this morning when we celebrated baptism. It is your vow that I have locked arms with Jesus. And we look back on that moment with encouragement. That is the day that I vowed to follow Jesus. That I declared that only through faith in Christ I am saved from my sins. And we remember that. And we celebrate it week after week as the march of the kingdom. Notice verse 22. Jesus who's been raised from the dead. Jesus who we have vowed our life to. Jesus who's Judgment we have been immersed into. Jesus who is ruling and reigning has gone into heaven. Now this is significant. Heaven is the presence of God, the rule and reign of God. And now Jesus has been allowed into God's presence after dying on the cross, being raised from the dead. But this is where God rules. And notice the place Jesus is given in the presence of God. The right hand of God. This is where the rule and reign of God comes forth. He is given the highest authority, the highest power. In the presence of God, He is King. And He has declared that to us in the resurrection. And notice what else? With the angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. Peter refers to things that you see that are under the rule of Christ. Jesus, when He commissions his disciples, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What you see is mine. From Richmond to the ends of the earth, Jesus rules over it. But also what you don't see. You see, we lack in a very concrete, physical way in which we view the world and mostly Christianity, which is sad because we read our Bibles and we read of spiritual warfare everywhere. There are angels and there are forces of darkness that wage war against one another all throughout human history. There is a spiritual realm that is very real. And what Peter says is Jesus is Lord over that spiritual realm. 
when he was raised from the dead, God declared him victorious. And notice, verse 22, all of these powers have been subjected to him. Angels and demons bow at his feet. Now remember this whole section that we've gone through? It's a section on submission. And Jesus is the ultimate example of submission. How does he do that? Because at the end of the day, he realizes that all things will be put under his feet. And so you submit to authority. You submit to roles in marriage. You submit to roles at your work, in your career. You submit to roles in the world for the good of the gospel because you realize you've been united with Jesus and everything else is already under his feet. And so you are free to submit in those ways. But notice this. As we we read this verse, notice the cosmic good news of the gospel. You've got... You've got to read your Bible understanding the spiritual realm, the forces, the the, the war that is being raged. You have to to wrap your mind around that so you understand the gospel. Because the gospel is this cosmic good news that Jesus is king over what you see and what you don't see. And you've been united with him and you will be a part of a kingdom that rules over it all. You've been immersed into Him. You you have been seated with Him in the heavenly places. Jesus is King of the cosmos. And that's good news for us. Because we're not. The reality is Jesus, Jesus isn't our homeboy. He's not. That would be bad news. Jesus isn't just this cartoonish, historical, flannel graph board figure... That, that can be controlled and manipulated. He's not. He's seated at the right hand of God right now. He's ruling and reigning right now over us, over human history. He is ruling and He is reigning right now. And there are legions, millions of spiritual forces that have been placed under His feet. That is glorious good news for us. There's no election that will unseat him. There's not. And so we can have hope even in the most dire of circumstances. Even under the rule, he he would say here to these exiles, of pagan emperors who hate you and who are trying to kill you. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God above all forces. See, on a regular basis, you know what God does? As As you pay your bills... As you, as you run your life and you manage your schedule and, and you're putting everything just in the right order that you want it. And then there's that moment where it doesn't go like I want it. And they didn't do what I thought they were going to do. And I didn't get that promotion. And I can't reach inside that person and reprogram them to just do whatever I want whenever I want it. And you know what's going on in your gut? I'm not in control. And some of us get frustrated and angry. And some of us get anxious and worried. And what Peter is telling you right now is even in the most chaotic, even as you think about the most devastation that's ever happened to planet Earth, the flood, God was still in control. 
And Jesus has proven he's God's king. And so in your little world, when things seem to be flooding, you can't grab control of it, when, when the world around you seems to be fire and rain, and you're like, what do I do? Oh, you look to Jesus, seated at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning over everything. We celebrate that in our worship service. When we gather here on a Sunday morning, we are saying we are the Lord's people. Jesus is our King. We declare that in our mission. Listen, there is no place on planet Earth in the world that the gospel cannot and will not go to. We use terms like closed countries. They don't exist because Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. He's ruling and he's reigning. We even think about our mission here. We don't have maybe money to do everything we want all the time. It doesn't matter. Jesus is ruling and reigning. He will reach the nations for himself. And even today, there are irrigation canals in the Andes Mountains of Peru where villagers were plunged under. They were immersed. There are caves in China where Christians made their way to. Nobody even knows they're there. Where there's a little creek in the middle of all of them. And there were folks illegally immersed today. There was a cattle trough in a warehouse this morning where there was an immersion. And all across the world today, there are villagers, there are farmers, there are factory workers, there are teachers, there are greeters at Walmart that are turning to the forces of darkness and saying, we've seen fire and we've seen rain in Jesus. And you will too one day as you smother under his wrath. Let's pray.